first and foremost, I'd like to acknowledge the country and pay my respect to the Gadigal elders, both past and present here today, and thank Aunt Rhonda for her beautiful welcome, and I recognise the continual custodianship that the Gadigal, Bidjigal, um, Darug mob maintain and continue over the waters, lands and seascapes that are surround beautiful um, current day so-called Sydney. I guess the points that I want to touch on today, and I'm sure you may or may not have heard me speak uh, prior about the voice and um, my personal uh, opposition to the voice itself, um, really comes down to, I guess, uh, like Paddy alluded to, the lack of consultation that actually occurred with First Nations communities um, and allowed for an informed process to actually be undertaken and uh, allowed for mob to actually step into a position where they can make their position quite clear. Um, now, you know, you can, I'm sure you are all educated people and aware of the different relevant documents that relate to the whole process itself. So we're looking at the final report from the Referendum Council about the Uluru Statement from the Heart and it really does speak to the actual power that this, um, this process or this mechanism has, which is nothing. Um, you know, and it speaks to the actual process of consultation that occurred, which really highlights the inadequacy of it um, and those who were targeted throughout the process. So as Paddy alluded to, um, as of recent, me, Professor Megan Davis actually come out at the National Press Conference. Um, is it Press? National press Club, I think. Press Club or whatever that um, elitist um, forum is, uh, come out and spoke about the process of Uluru Statement from Heart and actually alluded to the fact that they did exclude um, Indigenous leaders that were cynical of government. Now, I don't know any Indigenous leader that isn't cynical of government. I don't know any leader, for that matter, who isn't cynical of government. So for, for them to, I guess, engage in a process that excludes those who are critical, um, really speaks to what this here uh, end product of the voice was, which was something that appeased um, or, you know, uh, sorry, appeased to the ruling class that you all so um, gracefully, I guess, uh, spoke to throughout. And when I say gracefully, I'm definitely using sarcasm there because <laughs> um, your position was quite clear in terms of the way you view capitalism within Australia. I also remember there was um, throughout the conversation, I only just joined the uh, conversation prior, but it was, a, it was a conversation about imperialism as well and how it relates to, I guess, the socialist movement and how Australia really is an imperialist country. And we, I could see that because it has actually had a trickle-down effect on the way the First Nations people have engaged in political activism within this state. And we see that actually occurring through um, mechanisms such as you know, uh, the bastardizations of native title systems and the mm. land rights system and how that have actually um, been formulated to pin our people against each other. So when, you, when I say about um, imperialism actually filtering down into those spaces, I'm talking about a practice of neo-tribal imperialism where the government is actually validating um, First Nation mob who may not have traditional connections to country to actually have a say and a voice on what occurs on those traditional country, which goes in direct violation of our traditional protocols and our ways and customs and our life worldviews. Um, so we're talking about like a mixture of uh, this process that the government is so openly and actively supporting in terms of neurotribal imperialism and it's through the representation of um, boards like the land councils and, you know, I'm a big um, uh, person who stands against that because uh, and why I'm alluding to the facts of land councils is because land councils were actually used as the main consultative mm. um, bodies in each state when they were going about their 12 consultation sites for this process. Um, you know, 
Paddy touched on, I guess, you know, the role that Noel Pearson and the Cape York Institute also had in the foundations or the ideology behind constitutional recognition and the fact that John Howard, anything that John Howard jumps on the back end of, um, we definitely should be cynical of. Um, but as, you, as Paddy alluded to, you know, Noel Pearson has this real conservative view around self-determination. And, and for me, um, I feel like it is actually the bastardisation of self-determination that himself and Liberal counterparts and Conservative have actually engaged with. You know, so it's this process of getting the Conservative and, and the really right wing of the Liberal Party on board. And, you know, as you all, I'm sure you're all aware this week, the Liberal Party come out and made their position quite clear about the voice now. So it still couldn't even um, hit true to the right wing party of the Liberal itself. Mm. So we're talking about, you know, um, a process that uh, allowed for exclusion um, of mob. So the makeup of these, uh, of these consultations were a makeup of 60% recognised um, native title uh, prescribed body corporates. So those uh, First Nation people who have been recognised through the native title system, which had 20% representation from uh, Aboriginal community controlled organisations, where they were represented within the capacity of peak organisations. Um, but then we also had 20% of selected individuals who were also elected to come up there and attend these, these yarns. Now that's more of the process and why I'm so critical of it. At the end of the day, I'm from Moree, as you can all see from my shirt. Um, but no one from my community was consulted as a part of this process. And when we're talking about the consultations that actually occurred here in New South Wales, representation for regional and rural and remote communities or more, uh, like Moree were actually sent to Dubbo, and they were, but the, in, the consultation itself were all invite only. And the radicals, those who are cynical, those who are critical of government, heard by the Koori grapevine that these consultations were heard and actually rocked up and crashed as well, and that's how they pushed their way into it. So this wasn't a matter of, of um, you know, people that saying, who, who do you want representing it? This was a matter of who are those that we can get on board to get this over the line and, and produce a pro end product that's something that's going to get by pa Paris and support by government. Mm. You know, so we look at those who are... Um, who are part of these uh, expert panels as well. We're looking at those who have um, academic backgrounds. We're talking, now when we look at that, we're talking about a valuing of differentiation of knowledge. We're talking about the value of Western knowledge systems in this versus the value of actually traditional knowledges and culture. Um, we're talking about the conflict that happens of the validation of, West, of traditional knowledge within a system and trying to appease to the settler uh, colonial government. Um, so there are a lot of problems that exist and, you know, um, again, as Paddy alluded to, it does come from this racist ideology where we know we're engaging with a racist state here. Mm. It's not a state that was ever built for First Nations people. <clears throat> so we got grassroots people out there on the ground and we're talking about alternatives and we are so... I'm not talking like going to tell you how to go out and vote. I'm really not. All I'm saying is be really cynical of this process, be cynical of the First Nations people who are at the forefront having these conversations and the colonial practices that they actually engage with to get to the end product here that we're talking about. We've got grassroots people, you know, that formed campaigns like the Treaty Before Voice campaign that's coming out of the uh, state of Queensland and the Brisbane uh, Aboriginal Ten Embassy out there with the likes of Uncle Wayne Coco Warden leading that. Um, and the brothers um, Paul Spearham um, and Pete Spearham as well that are actually going township, the township, capital, capital, and actually 
really bringing high, uh, highlighting, uh, I guess, the lack of uh, engagement with grassroots, but also that exclusion of our voice within this process. They actually have a, a banner that they take with them, and then it actually says the voice brought to you by BHP and other corporates, <laughs> and it really speaks to actually the support that's behind this, which is, you know, uh, Patty alluded to it, the Business Council of Australia. So we've got all of these big businesses that um, have a history of, you know, uh, taking from First Nations people, whether it's, law, uh, uh, whether it's knowledge or whether it's actual um, tangible resources and using it for their own benefit, which actually contributes to this capitalist society and system that we so evidently um, reject and abhor within this space. <coughs> I guess when we're talking about alternatives to the voice and the way I see it, the alternative is, um, is and always will be and has always been there, and that's treaty. Like, um, and I think I said it before at a, um, at a talk where we spoke about this exact same issue, but we are actually in a unique position as First Nations people here in Australia is that we've got the added benefit of knowing the colonisers' language, understanding the knowledge production and the Western systems of knowledge production, but also having the added benefit to learn from history itself. So we're not coming into this blindfold, we're not coming into this uh, treaty-making process with a lack of knowledge of language and there's a differentiation, as we know, so, um, which we know happened within the Watani Treaty and the differentiation of the documents themselves. Um, so we're coming into this from a completely different point of view and the fact that we understand we also have this um, nuance of indifference of like traditional culture versus existing culture versus, you know, this nuanced contemporary culture um, that we can engage with to really benefit the way that we move forward with um, Aboriginal affairs and relationships within Australia. So for me, um, the only way that we can move forward is through treaty, but that is... The, that is a requirement of First Nation people um, to actually step into our sovereignty. And I mean really step into our sovereignty. Like, we share sovereignty with the Crown, you know? And if we don't share, like, in all due respect to our, uh, our allies in the space, but we don't share sovereignty with Jews. We share it with the Crown. And so it's about really stepping into that sovereignty is the way that we actually emancipate ourselves from the colonial struggle and the imperialist occupation that occupies um, Australia. So for me, it's always about um, treaty and going back to the truth of the matter. But then, you know, I guess one thing that really even highlights what I was saying, maybe the voice is a good way to get there because when we talk about the process, it was about truth, treaty, voice. And that's like the order that it's meant to go in. It's about actually having an honest and truthful conversation about our history and our relationship because there's no reconciliation. We're not coming from a place where we both were oh, honky-donky and, you know, fine and dandy with each other. We come from a place that always exists a violent struggle. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so we're coming into this space trying to... Recon uh, not reconcile, but to console, you know, to actually make a relationship here. And that can only come through truth and through truth, then we can reconcile with the treaty process. And then the voice comes, because we can't have actual voice without any power. You know, I'm not saying the voice ain't a part of this solution, but it's not now. There's a whole truth reckoning process that needs to occur, um, and it needs to have that instruction from a federal level that they would want to engage um, with treaty. But there's also a lot of conversation that needs to happen at a First Nation level. And when I say that, I mean, We've got to allow, you've got to allow space for us to conduct our business amongst ourselves. 
we've got to land on a position before we could even come to a, to settle a state and say, we want to be recognised in your instrument, which gives you power to govern over the people. Mm. You know, like, so we're not set on a position and we've got, um, you know, a small handful of Aboriginal First Nation elites, you know, who may see the benefit of power in this and it may not affect our, our sovereignty of inclusion within the, so within the Constitution. But that's not something that I'm going to risk. I don't want to risk that. My sovereignty is very valid. Now, I don't need it to be validated in any instrument. My sovereignty is something that lives within me and something that would never waver. Thank you. Hey, brother. Yeah, thanks very much, uh, Auntie, and uh, thanks, everyone, for coming. Um, I just thought I'd start uh, by just giving maybe just a bit of analysis about how our organisation sees power operating here on this continent and where we think the voice actually fits into that. And I think that flows into, you know, how can we actually act on the critical crises that Arnie Ronda's actually outlined that communities are actually facing, um, you know, in, in, in terms of actually taking on that oppression head on and trying to transform the situation. I mean, the first thing I think is to understand, as we went over in the last session, that Australia is a settler colonial society. So this is a society that's been established through the genocide of Indigenous people. The entire social order has been established on top of an already existing society, and that has involved incredible violence, you know, massacres, um, you know, the attempt to forcibly assimilate people, which continues to this day in many ways. I mean, we heard from Aunt about the removal of children that's taking place. Actually, more Aboriginal kids are, taking, are being removed from their families today than ever before, right? So there is a vicious assimilation drive that actually continues to operate out there, you know, in terms of the way the Australian political systems operating, um, you know, fundamentally anti-Aboriginal at its core in terms of the way the entire thing's set up, uh, to deny the knowledge, deny the connection to land, you know, and make sure that Australian capitalism can just operate as though there, are, there were no people here and they have no rights, right? Like, so that's that's the system. I mean, the, the second part of it is, as I mentioned there, it's a capitalist system, right? So that means that the people who actually have power in the society to make all the major decisions about what's produced, about how it's distributed, you know, about what the priorities of the society should be, despite the fact we're told we live in a democracy, actually those decisions are taken by the people who own capital, the capitalist class, right? The big supermarket chains and banks and mining companies and, you know, all the major corporations are the ones that actually control day to day what's going to happen, what, you know, what is actually going to be invested in, what's going to be taken seriously, what's going to be produced. I think the climate crisis shows you that more than anything, where you talk to anyone on the street now, we know we've got a massive problem with climate change. We know that that involves we have to actually stop mining and burning fossil fuels in the obscene rates that they're being burnt now. We need to transition to renewable energy. But can our system actually check the power of the fossil fuel companies? No, it can't, because in the final analysis, they actually control our media. They actually control our system of government and so all we can do is talk about a safeguard mechanism where we might be able to tinker and force them to buy some offsets if they open a new gas field but the idea we should could just say stop doing that and we will invest in the sustainable activities we need is off the table because we don't live in a democracy we live in a dictatorship of capital it's the capitalist class who actually own and control things but it also means that that capitalist class they actually need to manage the society and manage all the problems as they arise to try and keep some form of social cohesion keep the wheels turning 
returning and keep their profits flowing. And one thing they actually need to deal with is the reality of Aboriginal continuing Aboriginal existence and continuing Aboriginal resistance. Because as much as they have tried in the past to deal with, as they've seen it, the Aboriginal problem, you know, Rosie Kunoth monks famously said, we're not the problem, the system's the problem, you know, but, it, but that's the way they see it. We've got this problem. There's all these Aborigines that are still here. We wish they'd just go away, right? But they haven't gone away. They fought back so hard that they forced the system to actually, it has to accommodate Aboriginality in some way. It has to actually show it's got some way for Aboriginal people to fit into the society. But they want to make sure that that happens on their terms. They want to make sure that happens in a way that doesn't fundamentally upset the underlying balance of power and the power that they actually wield day to day over how decisions are made, you know, in our society. And that's where constitutional recognition comes in. Because actually, constitutional recognition is not something that has come from the Aboriginal rights movement. It's not something they were marching on the streets in the 70s saying, we want constitutional recognition. I mean, we've organised, all of us three here, been organised a lot of Aboriginal rights demonstrations. There's never been any demand for constitutional recognition. This has come from the government, right? This is a suggestion for reform that's come from the top. And most recently, in terms of the recent cycle of debate about constitutional recognition, it actually came from John Howard, right? After he launched the Northern Territory intervention in 2007, this horrific racist policy which set things back 50 years in Australia in terms of black rights. It set up a new protection board in the Northern Territory where Aboriginal people don't get their income. They're just on a basics card to be controlled. Police have got extraordinary powers to go into people's houses without a warrant. They put white managers in charge of all the communities. They seize control of land. Right, this horrific attack Two months after he did the intervention, he said, I've got this letter from Noel Pearson, this conservative Aboriginal figure, you know, talking about the need for constitutional recognition. And I agree with him because Noel's got really good policies about, you know, people need to be responsible and pull themselves up for their own bootstraps and constitutional recognition could fit in. I'm, if you elect me in the 2007 election, I'll do a referendum to acknowledge Aboriginal people as the first people of Australia, right? That was his commitment. And from that point forward, every Australian government has been committed in some way to both constitutional recognition and to the Northern Territory intervention, right? Like even the Albanese government now, for all their posturing about the voice to parliament and how progressive they are, the intervention regime is just as vicious as it ever was. They've just actually reneged on their promise to make income management voluntary. They're introducing a new card they're calling the smart card to control people. The 20,000 plus black people in Northern Australia that have been on this system for years and years will continue to be forced onto this system, right? Despite Labor promising it would become voluntary. They've re-supported race-based alcohol restrictions where you can't actually go into a bottle shop in Alice Springs if you're Aboriginal because it's a ban on the basis of race, right? So these horrific policies are actually the Albanese government's policies while they say that we've got this, while they say that we've got this voice to parliament, right? So it, that has been the function of the whole discussion of constitutional recognition is for governments to be able to say, look over here, we're doing this great thing for Indigenous people while on the ground... Smash, 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 the oppression continues and the oppression grinds on. In terms of the actual voice proposal itself, it's very important to understand that this came from the conservative side of politics, right? So this was cooked up by 
the Cape, Noel Pearson's Cape York Institute in 2014. And despite the fact that the Liberals are now saying they're going to vote no to it, and Julian Lisa, you know, the Shadow Minister for Indigenous Affairs, is out saying that we're going to vote no to The Voice, Julian Lisa was on the committee that designed this proposal back in 2014, along with Damien Freeman, who's a Liberal Party philosopher, along with other Conservatives, you know, constitutional lawyers. They designed a constitutional amendment because they were confronted with a problem where the Aboriginal community would not accept just token constitutional recognition that was on the table through, people might remember, the Recognise campaign, right? The idea that they would just put something in the Constitution saying, you know, Aborigines were here, it's Aboriginal land or something, you know, we'll put some motherhood statement in the Constitution, but we'll give no actual rights. That was rejected. I remember protests holding the megaphone for people saying we're against, you know, this, uh, this uh, recognition campaign. That's where they said, if this constitutional recognition is going to fly, we've got to be able to offer something to our community. It can't just be tokenistic constitutional recognition. And that's where they came up with the idea of a voice, that, that we will have this body. So that'll be real reform. It'll be a concrete thing. Aren't we saying we need concrete reforms? Here's the real reform. We're going to have the voice, right? But there's some very important characteristics of the voice that it was designed to make sure that it was acceptable to the political establishment in Australia. Number one, it will have no independent power at all, right? So the voice offers no rights at all. So this is just to read, right, from the, uh, a statement that was released by the constitutional expert group in December that's advising the Albanese government. The voice does not confer rights, much less special rights on Indigenous people, because its functions would be limited to making representations to parliament or government. And quote, this is an opportunity already available to any individual or organisation. Right? So we're not actually giving you special rights because anyone can make representations to parliament or the executive government. There's nothing actual special about this voice that we're, that we're establishing. The proposed constitutional amendment does not even create a right for Indigenous people to choose their own representatives because as the expert group member Antoine has explained, it leaves for the parliament the power to decide the composition of the voice. Right? So you could have many kinds of voices with this amendment. You could have a voice where they say, we do respect Indigenous self-determination, there's going to be elections at the local level and we're going to make sure all nations are represented and blah, blah, you could have that. Or you could have a hostile government come in and say, see you later, nice knowing you, we're going to handpick nine people, they're going to be the voice, now they're the voice under the new legislation, same as they did when they got rid of ATSIC and put in um, their, their Aboriginal Advisory Committee that came, right? So there's nothing in the amendment which gives people any rights or any protections whatsoever. The only thing is there must be this thing called the voice, but it's going to be up to the Parliament to decide what was done. And this was explicitly done, Antoine, the constitutional expert they all rely on, saying this was designed to bring the hard right of the Liberal Party on side. It was actually designed to be able to go to the establishment and say, this presents no threat to your power. This is something you can support. And while they haven't succeeded in getting the hard right of the Liberal Party on side, because actually the hard right of the Liberal Party is proving to the Australian ruling class that they're increasingly irrelevant to them, right? They've got the, the business council wanted the safeguard mechanism. The mining council wanted the safeguard mechanism. The Liberals wouldn't give it to them, right? Labor's happy to give them AUKUS. They don't need the Liberals. Now Labor's going to give them the voice and the Liberals are off playing 
playing some ideological game about Aboriginal people shouldn't have any, anything at all, no recognition at all. It's not good enough for modern Australian corporations. They know they need to have something to show that they we're doing something for Aboriginal people. They want to make sure that it's powerless. And that's what they've actually been given with the Voice to Parliament proposal. So in terms of like the question here has been like, what's the alternative? Because we have been very critical of this Voice to Parliament proposal from the start, from back in 2015, we were writing articles saying this is not about actually giving people rights and advancing and advancing struggle. <coughs> Our alternative to it, I mean, it's a need to make it clear, this isn't actually a pitch for you to go out and vote no to the voice, right? Personally, I don't see any particular use in trying to sink this thing electorally or something, you know? Like, a, a, it's just when we wake up the next day, if we have a voice or not, we're still going to be in a situation where even if the voice says, stop mining, um, you know, Santos, get out of the pillagar because the Gomorrah have said no, so what? Right? Like Albanese has actually stood up and very strongly said at a press conference, it's ridiculous to say that this voice will have any comment on climate change policy. It's got, no, you know, that's not, it's only going to be about issues that matter to Indigenous people, as though climate change doesn't matter to Indigenous people, right? So they are going to try to confine it very, very heavily to only making these representations or only having this particular, you know, this particular advisory role. And there may be some tension in that. But regardless of there's tension in that or not, the question of how are we going to actually stop Santos in the pillar still faces us. If it's the voice says yes or the voice says no to it, the government is going to go ahead and they've been clear about that. Albanese has said time and again, the important thing is it does not have a veto power. The important thing is it is only an advisory body. So in that sense, where is the power going to come from to actually deliver the aspirations that Indigenous people have? That comes through organisation, that comes through struggle. And for us, as going back to we're living under capitalism, that comes from actually being able to organise working people to use the power we have as the people that actually turn the wheels and allow society to turn, to strike, protest, fight, shut the system down, hit their profits, force them to shift, force them to say that there's going to be no gas pulled out of the pillar because the working class won't do it and will join Indigenous people on the blockades and will actually fight tooth and nail on the ground, you know, for the justice, for the justice that people, for the justice that people want. You know, and that's, you know, the legacy of Rhonda's family and Chica Dixon, you know, working with the Maritime Union and others. The big land rights protests in the early 1970s, unions used, to, unions used to stop work for them to actually go out and join those protests. You know, even more recently, the proposal to put a nuclear waste dump on Aboriginal land at Muckety in the Northern Territory, there was a ban put on that proposal by the Australian Council of Trade Unions, which helped to defeat it. So we're looking for how do we actually build up struggle that means when Indigenous people say we are sovereign and we say no, there is actually a power on the ground that can say we respect that, we'll deliver that, we'll actually fight for that, you know, with, you know on the streets, you know, and, 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 and in our workplaces. And I think, you know, like in, in that sense, it's going to be quite a hard period going forward, I think, when we're in the middle of the voice, because it's playing this role where everyone thinks Albanese is this big progressive when it comes to Indigenous affairs. I mean, how many people know that the special police, special tactical police, just shot this guy in the head, one shot in the head in Mareeba outside of Cairns while he was having a mental health crisis last week, right? One shot to his head, dressed in camouflage with AR-16 assault rifles, right? This is the kind of brutality that Indigenous people are facing. We put it on the front pages with mass mobilisations for Black Lives Matter. The police attacked our rallies hard to try and break that up and force that away. At the time, Albanese, in response to the rallies, said, we do need to do something about deaths in custody, and that's why we're supporting a voice to parliament. He's saying nothing now. He's just going on about the voice to cover up the support they're giving to resource companies against Indigenous rights, not just in the Pilliga, but all across Australia. 
The Albanese government is backing companies against Aboriginal people, doing nothing about their incarceration crisis, actually strengthening the racist powers that they've got in terms of the Northern Territory intervention. So it's our task, I think, to be exposing the hypocrisy of what the government's doing. And we need to understand there's going to be a lot of Aboriginal people out there that will vote no and are hostile to this. And they're hostile to it because they've been locked out. They like to say that the Uluru process was this great consensus building process. I went to protest with people who were locked out of those convention meetings, right? And Megan Davis, who's the big leader of it all, even says that they excluded the radicals because they were cynical of government and this was a law reform process. So we need to understand there is Indigenous hostility out there and our rallies and stuff we organise can't be yay to the voice. They can't be. They must be we're not listening to these hypocrites. Give us justice, give us action now, and we're going to stand shoulder to shoulder with our Indigenous comrades to fight for it. Thank you.